Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 173. 173, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, how better to start the week off with some uh, government censoring? Uh, well, it's not government censoring. Oh, you're talking about, are you talking about Nate getting arrested for tax evasion? What are you talking about? Wait, I got arrested for tax, tax evasion? evasion? I didn't know that people got arrested for tax evasion. <laughs> your, boy, your boy in the White House doesn't. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. Let me just say, let me just say real quick. I'm not a Trump voter, not a Biden voter. Don't be emailing me with that nonsense. Too smart for that. But I told Josh and uh, Nate before we got online here that him only paying 750 in taxes might have won my vote. Like that might have won my vote. I paid a lot more than 750 in taxes last year. And so. um, Is that $750 period or $750,000? $750 period. Yeah. So not only it might have got my vote, it also might have got his CPA new client. So whoever that is, I'll let you boy because my CPA sucks. He <laughs> 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 needs to set up like a like a coaching group, like coaching people on how to how to handle taxes. Yeah, I mean, he's the, I love he's her, the guru, right, but she sucks compared to the best tax stuff. strategy. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably pay. Yeah, I'd probably pay. Yeah, I'd probably go broke paying for Trump's. Uh, Trump's CPA services, but anyways, so yeah, anyways, Josh, I'm sorry. You were talking about censorship, communism, uh, the things that we hate on this show. So go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, DRW, David Ramson Wood got banned from LinkedIn. I believe it was a week ago. Uh, takes too hot. (laughs) 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 Yeah. The takes were too hot. And so I, I'll link to this, or Nate will link to this. Speaking of Nate, Nate, it's your last episode. Uh, yeah, I went to I went to go see. Episode. I went to go see if anyone left a five star review for you. No, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you were not worth the time for one more five star review, which I thought was fitting. Oh. I really appreciate that, man. You'd, you'd at least think that Ramston would, with all the time he has being banned by LinkedIn, would at least leave us a, a five-star review for me. Yeah. But no, no, no. You're just no love from anybody. That No love. Man, thanks, Oilfield. I did, ha- <laughs> I did have someone uh, text message me, but that's not the deal, so I'm not going to talk about that. because it's all- Oh, did Speakner say he's sorry to see me go? He's going to well, miss I- my homeless guy voice? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard from Speaker in a long time, but uh, anyway, so I got an interview with Ramsey Wood last week before the the band came down. We'll put it in the in the show notes so people check that out from the War Room newsletter. But uh, yeah, Josh, it's it's interesting because he got taken down for talking about the COVID. Like the COVID didn't get him. Well, I guess the COVID did get him. Actually, now that I think about it, it's it's in an ironic way the COVID got him. I mean, you think about all this communism, <laughs> communism used COVID to get him. <laughs> and yeah, you know, and so I, I put this in my, you could go listen to the interview and I wrote a, a piece about this, but real quick, and I don't want to spend all the time on this. Get your thoughts on this, Josh, though, for LinkedIn to, or any social media people to ban you from talking about COVID. I am fine with the so clear. I am fine with that. If they say, we don't want you talking about COVID <laughs> on our platform. Are you fine with that, Josh? 
uh, I suppose the owner just of the platform that, has the right to. Yeah, just on that, that statement alone, like that yeah. statement alone, like we don't want COVID talk here. You need to leave. I'm fine yeah. with that. What I'm not fine with is some idiot working for LinkedIn, like, oh, you're posting fake news and I'm the one that's going to determine it. Okay, well, let's just decipher this argument. So you're fine to say you can't talk about whatever here. It's, it's, it's their business. I'm fine with that. But when they tried to mask it in, some LinkedIn tech getting paid, you know, seven bucks an hour trying to decipher what is and actually what's true and false about the COVID stuff. Um, I don't think that that person's qualified. And let me explain to you why. First off, the, so the argument would be is that DRW is not qualified to talk about COVID, right? Because he's an epidemiologist or whatever. So that's, that's kind of the, base, the starting point, right? So you have two non-epidemiologists talking about the issue. So therefore, that cancels each other out, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So since that cancels each other out, um, well, the LinkedIn tech can't speak any more authoritatively about it than DRW can. So, okay. so then you say, well, we're going to go to the sources. Well, well, DRW went to the sources and so did the LinkedIn tech. So, and because neither one of them is more qualified to interpret the sources, then that can't steal each other's out, right? So then you go to the experts. You say, well, the LinkedIn tech, because he's bored and has nothing better to do, he calls up an, epidemi- an epidemiologist friend and says, hey, come read this post and see what you think. Now, what's the problem with that, Josh? Like, what would be the problem with why that last idea wouldn't work? If LinkedIn brought in an epidemiologist and the epidemiologist read DRW's post and said, this is fake news, what would be the problem there that, 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 that maybe you could think of? Uh, confirmation bias. He calls epidemiologists that he agrees with, and David Ramson Wood could go call an epi- epidemiologist that agrees with him, and then they cancel each other out again. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. There's that. Um, the, other, the other one would be is, how does the LinkedIn tech know? Okay, so we play like this. When you go to the doctor, and you're feeling bad, and the doctor says you have cancer. How do you know that you have cancer? You don't. You don't. You have to take it on faith. Yes. You don't actually know that you have cancer. Like, you don't know. They tell you. They show you these pictures. You look at those pictures. They say, that's cancer. Here's this big, long printout of uh, test results. That's cancer. You don't actually know that you have cancer because you're not qualified enough to, do, to actually interpret the data to determine whether or not you have cancer. So even if LinkedIn had an in-house epidemiologist, LinkedIn is not qualified enough to understand and interpret what the epidemiologist is saying, or, or I'm sorry, they're, they're qualified to understand what he's saying. They're not qualified to understand if what he's saying is true or she's true, uh, is true. And that's the problem with this whole trust the expert narrative. That's the problem with all this nonsense that people get into is they don't actually think about what they're saying. Trust the experts. Okay, well, how do you know the expert's right? Like, that's the point. So I, I, to be clear, LinkedIn can ban whoever they want to for whatever reason. I'm actually fine with that. I think we should have more folks with more freedom to, to do what they, what they please. What I'm not okay with is the hypocrisy of some uh, low-level LinkedIn tech uh, presuming that he understands what COVID is. Now, the problem, the reality is this, this LinkedIn tech probably has no idea. He's just getting orders from on top or she, I can't remember if it was, it was a male or female. Anyways, they're getting orders from on, yeah, Daniel. They're getting orders from on top and said, hey, we can't have this. We're ringing you up. But it's just, it's just the lack of stones. That's the problem, right? Yeah. You used to live in a country with stones. We're now stoneless, and that's, and that's a problem. So, uh, anyways, I thought we'd shout that out a little bit. So, he'll be over at hottakeoftheday.com and wherever else. He's got a big following. No folks that were finding. But if you want to hear my interview with him, uh, you can go check it out there in my write-up on the story from last week as well. Well, we got uh, a few stories that came out this week, Ryan. Uh, a few of them are, are interesting. One is uh, 
this one was on MRT. Landgraf expects challenging legislative session. So this guy is looking forward to um, so it, this come back in January. Members of the Texas Legislature, uh, no, this coming January, they're going to gather for a biennial session, expecting to confront the challenges stemming from COVID nineteen and some of the shutdowns from oil and gas. And he says that this is going to be his fourth session and it's probably going to be the worst one or the most challenging one that he's ever been a part of. He talks about um, they have to redraw districts for the House and Senate um, based on census data. And there's going to be a huge loss of revenue coming into the state. Uh, So he's expecting to have a very difficult year. So I'm just wondering with this election coming up with uh, loss of revenue, redistricting the, um, the state, of how the how the industry is going to look and how these legislators are going to handle some of these challenges. Yeah, and this is important for us in the oil and gas industry because when you hear, especially Democrats, talk about the U.S. Senate, they always say the Senate skews um, rural because of each state gets two senators, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, Idaho gets two senators and so does California. When you're talking about representatives, that's based upon you know, the demographics and and where people live. So that skews towards the urban areas. And so it's interesting because you have a lot of oil and gas workers in Houston, but you have a lot of non-oil and gas workers in Houston as well, right? So the makeup there isn't really uh, as representative as West Texas where all of the workers and the the landowners and stuff are. So, you know, changing around the the district and stuff is going to be interesting because, you know, it could shift the emphasis that the policies that some people feel because you have a lot more um, moderate to uh, liberal people that are be moving to the big cities and their concerns aren't going to be the concerns of those in West Texas. Yeah. yeah it's going to present some, uh, some, some changes for sure. Uh, then we have this article came out. So Nigeria, uh, others, oil production cuts to rebalance markets. So Nigeria is making, uh, some efforts to um, I guess cooperate with OPEC and and uh, and cut some of its oil production. Uh, so it's good news seeing that uh, I say it's good news um, to see other companies making moves to, to help bolster oil prices uh, to get them uh, you know back to a little bit more stability. Um, but you know I didn't I didn't necessarily expect to see this coming from Nigeria at this point. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I think the OPEC news, OPEC's threatening to, you know, do something to people who, who don't comply. So uh, Nigeria is interesting because they, they really need high oil prices, the corruption and the inefficiencies in their, in their, oil, um, in their oil market. It makes it so expensive to drill over there. I think their break even is like a projected 120 a barrel. Like oh, that. good Lord. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. And so, um, which means that they're less incentivized to cut than anyone else because, you know, they need every little dollar they can get out of this thing. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, I think uh, – I still think we're too early on to really determine where people's new loyalties will lie and stuff like that. We still have a lot of lot of work to do with, with Russia, China, U.S., and, uh, of course, OPEC. So, yeah, we'll see how it all shakes out. And we had uh, a couple of things that came out this week, um, some – uh, some news that um, shrinking stockpiles boost oil with gains capped by Fed warning. Uh, so there's a couple of articles that came out about the Feds and, and some of their cap warning and, and some uh, also some articles uh, mentioning the 
the, the stockpile is beginning to shrink. I think we actually touched on these. Yeah, this, this article is from the 23rd. So we touched on some of this last week. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what the feds and, and how their interaction with the oil industry is going to affect, affect us. Uh, because that's, that's one of the unknowns because that can be a, a kind of an artificial influence on oil prices. And, uh, so right here, it has S and P 500 index fell by as much as 2.4% after federal reserve chairman reiterated his view that there's, a long way to go for economic rebound. Which, which um, real quick means Nate's going to owe us a burger here in a few days, right? Or was no. it a banana split? No. Yeah, well, it was the full burger. meal, right? It was oh, a yeah. Burger, yeah. Banana yeah. split. It was a combo, large. The whole, that's whole kit and caboodle. The whole kit and caboodle, yeah. You, you guys are going to owe me burgers. <laughs> I mean, the Fed's never been wrong, so let's just keep that in mind. Okay. Except oh, about no, 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 how no, the no, Fed no. needs to exist, yes. <laughs> Don't quote <laughs> <about> that. <laughs> Yeah. So one thing on the S&P, just in general, and I haven't looked at this in like two weeks, three weeks, so it might have changed. But up until like three weeks ago, there's only four companies, I think it was, that were actually up on the year for the S&P, right? And those four were up enough to lift up the other 496. So, you know, I, I think there's plenty of warning signs that there are a lot, a lot of bad things looming around the corner that if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves um, in that, you know, you're starting to talk about inflation and uh, the dollar weakening and stuff like that. So we'll see. I don't know what the Fed can do and then keep pumping money in this thing. But, you know, um, I think me and you've said it for a long time now, not that we're geniuses, but we got to get up and going if we're going to, if we're going to fix this thing. Right. I mean, that's just yeah. all there is to it. So we can keep talking about, low interest rates, monetary policy, this, that, and the other. We got to get up. We got to get going. And, uh, you know, until we do that, we're going to have all kinds of weird signals to the market. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's what we need to see. We need to see uh, oil demand begin to rise, schools open, and people going to the basketball games and football games instead of having empty stadiums. And, and we just need to get back to it because this is uh, this is just drawing out the pain that it's not only going to be felt in the oil and gas industry. I, I was looking at some, some graphs from uh, um, it's kind of an economic survey and they were showing that during the COVID, the people that were hit the hardest with unemployment were the people that made uh, around $450 a week. Yeah. Uh, where the people hit the hardest and the people hit the least hardest were the people that made over $1,500 a week. Now, what they showed was that due to the stimulus that the people making $450 a week, basically they were able to artificially um, delay the impact that that was going to have upstream. Right. So now that this money stopped coming in, the people that are making $450 a week are actually feeling the real pain of losing the job because that money's not coming in now. So what they're what they're showing is in terms of construction, um, oil and gas, and all the way up, all the way up through the economy, that the the pain, the real pain of the shutdown is kicking in right now. Like now is is when it was when it's kicking in. So what we're saying is we need to get it open back up because uh, it's about to get pretty. In my opinion, it's about to get pretty brutal as this lack of income starts to work its way up from the lower income all the way up through as, as it's going to affect every aspect of the economy and uh, using oil and gas is just one thing. I mean, you stop by a gas station, you buy this, you, you pick up some snacks, you 
yeah. you have some ice cream, you, yeah. you know, all this stuff goes into it. And it's, it's, we just need to get back to it. Like you say. Well, yeah. And so real quick, I know we got a guest coming on here in a second. So real quick, just a couple things. One, um, I am sick and tired of these headlines that read coronavirus targets uh, impacts low-income families the most. Okay. No, 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 no. You morons at the New York times, the Washington post and CNN who scream the sky is falling and that we're all going to die. If we don't stay at home, you, you impacted low-income people the most because you don't care about those people. What you care about is, is, I don't know, being an idiot, I suppose. Um, but have you seen those headlines, Josh? Like coronavirus impacts the low-income families the most. It's like, and, and it talks about what you're talking about, which is how they lost their job. They don't have insurance. It's like, well, what did you think was going to happen when you shut this yeah. down? Like, yeah. have ain't you been a low-income person in your life? Yeah, it's, it's government overreach that's make this affecting the lowest income the most. But who is that's the one screaming that if we don't shut down, we're going to die? Who is the one publishing articles every day that we're all going to die? Who? Yeah. It's them buffoons. Yep. I mean, we were just talking before we got on about the, about the, the Ford article, right? Let me just pull this up real quick. This is my one COVID round of the day. USA Today. Florida schools reopened in mass, but a surge in coronavirus didn't follow. A USA Today analyst analysis found. Oh, poor USA Today. Did you not get your corona surge? Oh, hold on. I'm so sorry. Yeah, exactly. Here it is. Maybe the we ex- can get them a sucker and it'll uh, make them feel better about themselves. Here's what it says. The experts, the experts, whoever these experts are, cautioned, however, that just because things went well for schools early doesn't mean they can't be the source of future problems. And they warned against reading the data as a reason to reopen all schools or abandon safety measures. These people hate us. I swear. These people hate us. I mean. I love that. The experts. The experts. (laughs) It's funny. I, I, I would love for, I mean, listen. There's nothing wrong with experts. That's not the argument, right? So if I'm sick and I've got, I go to the doctor and the doctor says you got cancer, I'm going to take that very seriously. I might get a second opinion, but I'm gonna take it very seriously. But you know what I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna ask the expert, I mean, the, the, the expert on cancer, how to file my taxes this year, what job I should take. I might ask him what be more, you know, can I handle a more strenuous job or a less strenuous job? You know, can I f- f- travel? What's my weakened immune system? But then I'll talk to other people too. There, this idea that epidemiologists are the experts for everything in life is a fantasy that's driven by the stupidest people in the world, which are the ones that work in the mainstream media. Well, it's a bigger, it's a big difference between saying you have cancer now do this course of treatment and uh, saying you have cancer now stay in your house and give me all of your money. Yes. Yeah. Well, not only you, but then everyone around you and all this stuff. And so there's economic, there, there, there's trade-offs here. And, and these whole, this whole trust the expert stuff, um, the experts that we're, to, that we're talking to are very narrow defined experts. And for that, how we spread coronavirus, they may have insight on that, but how the economy should work and stuff like that. They really don't have a lot to say. And unfortunately, the folks that write the articles aren't any smarter. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that's part of the, the thing that if you see. Um, oh, never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, if you see the, the guy, Alex Berenson, you know, he, he says on there that epidemiologists, uh, 
they don't know the fallout and the economic pain of what they're doing. They're not, they don't, they don't understand that their sp- specific area of interest, how bad it's going to affect the specific actions are going to affect you know millions of other people. And that that's not their area of expertise. Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, <laughs> it's that. And do they care? That's the other thing, right? You know, are they actually concerned about the, um, the impact of this stuff? And, and I'm not sure they do. And, and, and listen, um, it's, it's, yeah, we we can, we got a guest on, we'll, we'll get to that. So uh, today we have a guest, Kevin Burns with K9 Energy Services joining us on the show. Kevin, great to have you on the show today. Been looking forward to it. How's, how's your day going so far? Going pretty good. Just got enjoying the wet weather out here. Nice rain. So it's good. Taking, taking it in while I can. It's finally cooling off out here. So yeah, no kidding, man. I, uh, I stepped out this morning for just a few minutes and uh, felt good. I tell you what, up here, it was like, the sun was literally in the backyard for what, three weeks in August, Josh. It felt like. Oh, man. And then. Killed my grass. It, yeah, the grass was all brown. And then it rained. And ever since then, it's been like San Diego. It's been, we had not had a bad day in I don't know how long now. Over a month, at least. You know, so we just moved here last, towards the end of last summer from Midland, Texas. Where my wife was born and raised in Midland. I lived out there for 16 years before we moved here. And everyone talks about the humidity and stuff out here. And I won't lie, humidity is definitely different, you know, than the dryness in Midland. But looking at the stories I'm hearing from some of the weather people and some of the people around here, they're talking about like this last summer being like one of the hottest summers they've had out here Mm. and one of the toughest summers they've had. And my wife are sitting here like, if this is your toughest summer, we are in for a treat. (laughs) (laughs) Because this, yeah, well, there's a few bad days, but this wasn't like, you know, the 115, 120 day summers I'm used to for 30, 60 days straight in Midland. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, I think BFW is kind of right in the middle because it's not as dry as Midland and it's not as wet as Houston. So you get some of that heat, but it's more of a dry heat. Where Josh and I used to live uh, many moons ago, it was really like kind of that, that Houston swamp. Um, and so, which, which means, you know, when it's in May, you walk outside and it's like eight degrees, you start pouring sweat. It's like, well, that just sucks, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, don't miss yeah, that. Anyway, I, so, I do that some. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we, we kind of we kind of avoid that up up here in uh, in the Barnett. So um, let's kind of get into the show here a little bit or what we want to talk to you about. Kind of walk us through, you said you've been out in Midland for a long time. Um, Kind of your perspective on what you've seen these past six to eight months with the downturn. Uh, it's been uh, rough on a lot of people, but you know, you're kind of an engineer, kind of have a little bit more of a technical perspective than, than a guy like uh, uh, Josh or myself would. So we'd love to hear what your thoughts are. And what are you kind of hearing down there on the ground in Houston? Are people more optimistic maybe than um, you know, some of the rest of us are, or are they kind of down in the dumps about what they're, what they're seeing with the industry? Um, really, Houston's probably a little bit more optimistic but I also think it's the type of companies you probably have here in Houston, say, compared to a field-based town like Midland. Not that you don't have the executives and some larger companies based in Midland, but obviously there's a lot of technology companies, a lot of tool companies based here, executives based here, um, companies that have the opportunities, you know, like the Shells and the BPs to um, kind of divert their focuses and grow. Um and obviously a lot of the money guys are here. And so um, while you still have some people a little pe- pessimistic, but most of them I think are pretty bullish on the opportunity of oil and gas coming back, but they're still realistic about it, right? It's obviously not going to be this year. Got the election coming up. We still have COVID going around and kind of 
keeping the demand down. Um, so I think that once things open back up, it'll be interesting to see for sure. But I think for most part, most people are optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic as well. It's definitely going to be different. I lean a little bit towards kind of like how DRW does. I definitely think it's going to be different. Um, and this downturn is definitely an opportunity for us to not let a good crisis go to waste. So, <laughs> as a uh, oil and gas, actually, uh, I, I, I got that from a really, you know, experienced oil and gas executive based in Midland. He, he kind of uses that term and I, I really take it to heart when he kind of shared that with me. Um, but yeah, we really just need to not let this good crisis go to waste and take it to our advantage and be smart because obviously as an industry, where we're at because of some of the probably the poor decisions we made overall in the past, not just COVID, but yeah. And, didn't help you know, either. Yeah. I think, the, I think I've seen kind of the narrative, especially back in uh, middle of March, early April, people are like, well, these shell companies are get what they deserve. It's like, no, 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 no. Okay. This is like a triple black. This is like a, a full pond of black swans. Okay. <laughs> like this, <laughs> it still might've happened. But when the, when the, when the gaggle of what's it what's it a herd a flock whatever a bunch of swans are when they land on the pond like this and they're all black you didn't see this one coming and so um, you know there's a lot of healthy companies that are struggling and going out of business and so I think kind of the the uh, you talk about missing the opportunity and reshaping it part of that is that there was kind of this pent up frustration and I've never really understood this with folks in the industry that were like oh these shell companies you know they're kind of screwing people over and you know they're kind of lying and, and if you if you follow the investment banking stuff what you find out is that the investment bankers want to be lied to like that's what they want I, i'm serious go look at the uh what was the WeWork deal? If you go yep. to the reports about WeWork, that dude was taking those investment bankers out to, to strip clubs and champagne rooms and all this stuff. And that's why the evaluation was so high. It wasn't because, I mean, he might've been lying to them as well, but they didn't want the truth. They wanted to go party with him. So these, uh, these folks out here crunching the numbers, they ain't really wanting the numbers. Now, did the shell companies kind of mislead them back in the day? Maybe, maybe not. That's, that's fine discussion to have, but um, it is a chance to kind of rebrand the industry. I do agree with you there, but how do we go about doing that from your perspective? Because it feels like a few years ago, I was kind of on this little deal about, you know, we should talk about you know, the lies that we saved, the lives, lives that we saved, da, 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 da. That message kind of gets, gets a little bit of steam, but that's not really the, the heart and soul of the oil and gas worker. It doesn't really resonate with them. It's more of a, an outside message. So how do you kind of balance that and messaging it where maybe the, the workers can get behind it and the public will get behind it as well? That's, that's tough, right? Because if you look just at, single wells, we have these high capital, high decline wells, right? And so even if you wanted to tell these guys, okay, well, keep your rig count down and don't go out there and like blow through these, this production to slow things down, keep prices good and keep work steady. Well, that, that only flies so long before the, the supply gets so low compared to demand, we still hurt ourselves. Um, we hurt the economy. We don't provide the benefit as a cheap option for them any longer. And so it's, it's not this simple, well, we need to stop being, you know, so greedy and running 2 million rigs out there every time, you know, price jumps up or mm -hmm. we need to slow down and cut back. It's, it, it's a very delicate balance that these CEOs have and not only that, but just the workforce is changing, right? Now these CEOs aren't just responsible for shareholders. They're responsible for the souls of their employees. Mm -hmm. 
you know, with just the way this marketplace is changing, you have people that want to get in this industry, but they may not want to work two weeks on, two weeks off in the field starting out. That's, that, that wasn't their passion. That wasn't their goal. They like the data side. They like the analytics side. But really, we don't need everybody sitting in a room in a chair looking at data with the technology, the way it's growing and moving. We still need those guys out in the field swinging hammers and moving things around. Um, I, I, I think we'll, we'll see some trends back to where we were, right? Red count will definitely come back up. I definitely think mergers and acquisitions are going to be the way to go. Um, but I want to, I think it needs to be limited. All right. Because if we start having too many of them, we start getting these big companies involved and we potentially lose those efficiencies we have. Right. There's a reason why companies are able to go out there. These smaller private equity companies are able to go out there and do what they can do compared to the Chevrons, the Exxons, the Shells. Um, and so I'm a firm believer in these mid-sized private, maybe slightly publicly traded companies versus these really small guys and or really big guys, because I think that's where the real growth and balance is between maintaining some efficiencies while also kind of leaning towards that um, innovative side of the market that we need to keep going. Um, and maybe even a balance of maybe not just be oil and gas companies, but maybe even just be energy companies, right? I don't, I don't fully believe in what BP is doing. I think they're dropping too much of their right. um, hydrocarbon base. But really, at the end of the day, why don't we look at ways to hedge our business to spread it out across the board? So. On some level, it felt like it was kind of turning that way. I know last year I was having some calls with folks about you know new ways to um, to bring power source to these wells that are kind of in remote remote areas. And so you're kind of you're kind of getting creative. Of course, you got the whole Bitcoin crew that's wanting to you know, mine for Bitcoin and there's solar panels. And so it, it was kind of trending that way. Um, I don't know what this will do to it, um, you know, as, as, we, as things kind of reset. But one of the things that we talked about, God, it's been a long time ago on the show, was kind of the water market. That was, well, if you go back before the water market, the sand market was kind of the golden goose, right? The sand market was, you know, everyone's going to make money on salt sand. And then the water market came along. Uh, and that was the next golden goose. The sand market was quietly given the old yellow treatment. Now the water market was where it's at. Uh, SWDs, you know, uh, produce water, all this stuff. I'm, I'm, I haven't heard any stories lately, so I'm, I'm imagining <laughs> the the water market's probably in a bad spot right now. It it is a little bit right because there are a lot of companies out there that had their SWDs filled based off of overflow from operators. Right. Uh, there are still those that had contracts, and they're primary the primary disposal for that EMP company. But a lot of them, there's still a lot of volumes out there that were surge volumes based off the IPs coming in from these new wells. Well, with 600 and something rigs down right now, compared to last year, right? that volume is not there anymore. And so, you know, those SWD guys probably saw a nice little uptick initially when things started shutting down, right? Because you had all these produced water ponds and all this water sitting there. And so they're like, oh man, we're doing great. And then all of a sudden, after that fixed volume disappeared, they're hurting, right. you know, there's a couple of companies out there, I think are struggling to pay their bills and make the returns on those new rest of that they got started. Um, and they're gonna have to probably do a lot more merging and acquisition than the EMPs will. You got so many players in that market and there was such a land grab uh, probably for the past three to five years in the SWD market, putting permits out there, holding their space and with the government agencies, both in New Mexico and Texas, trying to figure out spacing rules and injection rules. And they're still working through all that. 
these guys are going to have to go out there and start merging and, and create some efficiencies because there's so many options out there. It's hard to maintain a consistent customer base wherever you're at. Um, I know NGL's got a pretty good market since they bought Mesquite in Southeast New Mexico, Al as well. Solaris has got a pretty good infrastructure. But, you know, until you differentiate yourself, I still know of operators that are going to be like, all right, I'll give you some water, but I'm going to give this guy some water because right. at the end of the day, you know, you still don't deliver what we really need to be feel safe, right? Operators need to be feel, need to feel safe with who they're doing business with. Right. So. What about consolidation? I mean, do you think that we're going to see, obviously not all services can be brought in house to the, um, to these producers, but you know, something like SWDs or whatever. So you kind of, I always kind of joke with people at when oil was a hundred dollars a barrel. Okay. That's when everyone was going to the Cowboys game and they were in the suites, right? They're rolling in and the, they're flying in the chopper. They're rolling to the game in a limo, that two minute drive. And they're going to the suites at 70. They're at the 50 yard line. At 60, they're in the upper nosebleeds. At 50, they're giving the clients the tickets. The clients, go, uh, the clients go by himself. And at 40, they're like, hey, bud, go watch the game yourself, right? <laughs> so there, there's a lot of cost that kind of gets run through the industry. Now, it's not, it's not the big portion of the cost. But there's a lot of cost that gets put into the industry of just the whining and the dining and um, the, 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 the competition between the vendors and the clients. Um, and I'm, I'm pro-capitalism, so I'm not I'm proud with that. But is there going to be a push maybe to say, you know what, if we brought in this service in-house or we brought in this service in-house or, you know, we just bought up this company, they can still do what they want to do. But for us, they can do it at discount. Do you think we're going to see some of that with maybe some of these uh, more, as you kind of said earlier, maybe the, the, the kind of mid-sized companies that are trying to be strategic in what they do so they can um, bring in some of these folks, add a new uh, portfolio to their business unit um, and maybe reduce their costs in the long run? Yeah, you're already starting to see that, right? Al um, has solids disposal brought in. They're looking at doing, they're doing some recycling and reuse as well. Solaris has a huge infrastructure that's offering reuse, fresh water. Uh, I think even Solaris has sand, right? Um, they're bringing some of that stuff out there along with their disposal, kind of trying to merge it all together. Um, Three Bear has a few things, right? Three Bear's got companies like the Three Bears and that are doing crude gas and water, mm-hmm. right? Kind of providing some value that way. So um, there's people already looking at that and seeing that you really need to kind of be this produced water management company more so than just a disposal company or just the fresh water company um, because there is some value there, right? Because mm-hmm. you have that GNA that you got to worry about that there's this big push from the finance guys about keeping that down, spreading that out, spreading that risk out. And, you know, you got one company here with all the money and right. you're investing in this guy producing fresh water, for, for supplying fresh water, this guy that's doing some kind of treating and this guy that's over here doing disposal. Well, let's bring them all in house. Now only have one CEO, one CFO, you know, one commercial officer, you know, really getting out there and kind of pushing this thing for us. Right. Um, so, the hard part about that, though, is, is it's all going to be in the same place geographically, right? Right. Because right. it's going to be hard to be like, well, we got this way over here. We got this way over here. Right. You, you really almost need to find this geographic region that you can use as work control and, and right. provide all those services in that region. So uh, you ready to wrap up here? Was actually this one of the things I've often wondered about from you've worked on the, the company side of things is that you know, from a service company, you know, we make most of our money when the prices are high, not because our, our margins are that much better, they're a little bit better, but because of all the changes in the inefficiencies of the market. Uh, and so, you know, when it's $100 a barrel, as I was joking, we're, you know, the chopper's out, the limo's out. Well, okay, we're making a little bit more and we have more people working for clients. It's just that we're doing the same job 30 times <laughs> that yeah. we should have done maybe once or twice. 
I don't see if the price especially shoots back up. I don't see that leaving the industry anytime soon. Um, from the service side, that was always a way that we made a ton of money. How big of an expenditure is it from the company side? Is it really that big of a concern? Because that seems to be one of the inefficiencies that no one really talks about. And so I've always been curious uh, from the company side of things, is, is it really that big of a concern or is it just the service companies are just racking it up and you know, the operators aren't really concerned about it? Well, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's a balancing point. It's delicate, right? Cause you know, if I'm the end user and I'm coming to you, Ryan, and you, you give me options A, B and C in the cost, right? And, and I know the risks associated with all the different services and options that you provide and the cost associated with those options. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of guy that's going to sit there like, man, it'd be really nice to be able to get it for this cost. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Knowing that, you know, even though the risk is I can still end up doing this cost, mm-hmm. you know, and actually slightly more because I have to bring you back out again in a time or two. Right. And, and it's, it's that, it's that risk game at the end of the day that these guys are playing that really kind of dictates a lot of that reuse, you know, of services, having to go back out there and refix something, having to go redo something, having to do it over and over again versus spending it all up front, you know, along with just the time value of that money. Right. You know, if I have you do it, you know, five pads at once right now, yeah, I could probably save some money per pad, but I really don't need those other four pads till X amount of time down the road. I just think that capital in this project that I get no value out of anytime soon. Um, yeah, I'm going to spend more money down the road, but I get that value back sooner, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just that balancing game. And, and there's a lot of um, truths to the Permian, honestly kind of losing its economics without the value of, you vendors providing services for multiple locations at once, right? Giving you that volume metrics in, in, in pricing. Um, because if I only give you one well at a time, you're probably not going to give me as good a price if I gave you 10 wells at a time. Yeah. It's, you know I mean? it's, so it's that. And it's also, um, and this is always, it's always interesting. I'd say we, we want your best guys. Like, well, okay, we'll pay, pay more for the best guys. <laughs> well, I don't want to pay more for the best guys. It's like, well, okay, then you're going to get the same rate and we're going to give you the best guys that are available. But I always thought that interesting. Like we would have, you know, clients like, well, we want your best guys. Like you want to pay more for them? No. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and some of those mentalities, I think the oil field needs to, needs to, need to uh, work. You talk about changing and reshaping is, you know, if you value the vendor's A-team or in a method A-team, not this team, but the vendor, um, you know, how do you go about the process of securing that team with a threshold that can, can keep them going. Um, but you get those guys because they work well with your team because there's, there, listen, as you know, when you bring in, uh, you know, a new company guy and four new vendors, it's just, it's just odd just kind of get everybody working together and stuff. And so there's um, all of those are little things that um, there are complex problems that, but, that each company has to tackle. And so I'm curious if we will see some of those efficiencies or kinks try to be worked out uh, because I don't think we're going to see a shoot to a hundred in the next three, four months. So we've got some time to kind of, kind of, to kind of toy with yeah. some of those ideas. So um, anything else before we let you go and also uh, tell people where they can find you more about your company, what you got, got, what you got going on now. You're not on the company side of things even more. So um, a bit more about canine. So the canine came about, it's kind of really interesting, right? I spent probably the past few years working on a private equity water space working mostly focusing on capital projects. Well, unfortunately, there's this huge ebb and flow to capital projects in the water side, right? You got all this time spent, you know, drilling a few wells. They don't have these consistent drilling programs, these consistent capital programs like the operators do. You know, they may drill a couple wells here this year and they'd be dead for a few months and then pick up again. And, and it's really tough, you know, for the DNC guys because when things are tough, they keep you on. 
when things are slow, they might need you more. All right, we got to keep our costs down. See you later. You know, maybe me, maybe someone else. It doesn't matter. So my thought is really at the end of the day, you know, instead of you guys, instead of these guys like the Solaris's or the Black Bucks or the Owls or whatever, keeping these intensive capital guys on staff, right? Let us do that. We keep these guys on staff. We can bounce them around between all these different guys. They keep their GNA down. It's a lot easier to capitalize our cost to a project um, versus a salary guy that's not tracking their time. And, you know, all right, Kevin, we need you for these next, your team for the next two months. That's it. Okay, fine. That's fine. Cause I got this other guy down the road that we can go do work for. And, you know, we still keep our work consistent. They don't have to worry about whether or not they got work for the guy down the road or not, you know, um, it just provides that kind of value to those guys, uh, especially with the market, the way it's going, like you talked about, right? New York's making these big pushes, trying to be more cash flow positive, trying to keep your overhead down, um, trying to reduce your capital costs. Um, so, well, that's just kind of the thought process there. Let us handle the pain of carrying these capital cost guys and kind of pass that benefit on to them. So, yeah, and if you've got an extra capital you just want to get rid of, uh, before you hire Kevin, just send it over to me and Josh. You know, we'll, we'll, take, we'll take a little bit of extra yeah. cash as well. So. Well, and, and it provides value because then I have guys that can do other things. Like, I'm actually working on a hydrogen storage project for some guys right now. Oh, cool. It, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not only a gas project, other than I'm going to be potentially drilling some wells and running casing and cementing it. Right. That's it. Right. You know, um, I, they, I got some other guys that want me to look at some water stuff in West Africa yeah. in a couple months, you know, awesome. so. It, it it gives me an opportunity to learn more about the industry or and other basins than I've had in the past. So cool. Really enjoy that. Where, where can people find you at? Uh, right now, just on LinkedIn. We're working on getting our logo and LinkedIn page set up officially for it. My wife's been really great helping me out with that. She's really good about that kind of stuff. So awesome. I'll let her run with that. So. Okay. Well, we will link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. I'll send that over to... Uh, Nathan right now. Okay, Kevin, it was wonderful to have you on. Uh, best of luck with the new venture and look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Y'all have a good week. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks again for Kevin joining us on the show today. It was great getting some, uh, some insights from him. Um, interesting to see uh, some of the strategies he's trying to implement during, his, uh, during these tough times. Uh, so hope to see him succeed. Ryan, uh, to wrap a few things up, we had a couple of things for the roundup. I'm just going to hit these. A few high points. Um, first one is Devon Energy to acquire WPX Energy for $2.56 billion in an all-stock exchange. Um, another one, there was a, a carbon monoxide killed 16 people in a coal mine in southwest China. Now, I know that is not uh, Texas oil and gas, but... Um, some of the dangers in these coal mines are, are coming to light, and I just wonder how, what kind of coverage that'll get from some of the media. Um, being that it's China, probably not much, but uh, it's interesting to see how how things are covered differently in different areas uh, by the same media folks. Uh, last, uh, actually, two more, two more I wanted to hit. Uh, first one is rig count rises for second week. U.S. gains six, Midland yeah. gains three. Three rig boom, oh, three rig boom this three week. Rig boom, baby, <laughs> we we <Yeah>. back. <laughs> and uh, last one, Permian investments grow as market shows signs of recovery. 
Okay, hold on. I got I got two before we go off here. One, I'm going to play a snippet of uh, my interview with DRW at the end. I'll start with Nate, and so we'll play it at the end of the podcast. So you just hang on. You can listen to a snippet of that, and you can go uh, subscribe to the War Room newsletter for the full one. But here's the second one. Now, this one should not shock anyone. West Texas conservative oil and gas mega donors pour big bucks into Shelley Luther's state Senate bid. Now, does that name ring a bell to you, gentlemen? Yeah, actually, yeah, I, I read that this morning. Yeah, you know, you know, Nate, that's the haircutting girl that they arrested up in Dallas. Oh, no way. How can I no not get arrested for anything way. good? Like, what? Get what? out what of here. What about me? Why don't we have her on the show? She needs to come on Texas Oil and Gas podcast. Yeah. I already got to her. So, yeah, so Midland Oil Man Tim Dunn. Tim Dunn, my, dude, we've been pounding, we've been pounding oil and gas on this show for how many episodes now? How many? 173. 100, you ain't giving us a dollar, Tim Dunn. Step up, son. Step up. Gave her a million dollars. Haircutters, man. Oh. A million dollars. Oh. Let's see here. Uh, Cisco fracking billionaires Ferris Wilkes and his wife Joanne chipped in 100K. Bro, bro we've been here. 170 episodes. I mean, I have like 400 plus oil and gas podcasts out of my life, and I can't get a dollar from you people. Like I'm, go- I tell you what I'm doing. I'm going. Ladies and gentlemen, Ray for uh, for Texas State Senate 2020. <laughs> now send us the money. <laughs> I mean, how? Like, what am I doing wrong with my life to where this lady? And listen, she was screwed. I, I'm not. I I was on her side. Why can I not get arrested? And it's like it's like this. It's like this one more one more story, Josh. This this will kind of summarize my. My thoughts on 2020. Let's see it here. I've got it. Um, I've got it right here. Uh, but yeah, I, I just saw that. I was like, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, we've been we've been pro oil and gas since she probably didn't even know what oil and gas was. And, you know, here we are, like, you know, pounding the message home, power to the the worker, all this stuff. Well, for her, oil and gas was probably like, you know, lotion and. <laughs> Aerosols. Yeah, and listen, we're not, I'm not mocking her. I'm like, I'm saying like, I don't know nothing about, I don't know about the, the about the hair salon business, right? So I have yeah. nothing about that. Like, I'm pro hair salons as much as that, whatever that means. I have no idea. It's probably how she is for oil and gas. Like, yeah, okay. Headline: September 23rd, Hunter Biden received 3.5 million wire transfer from Russian billionaire Russia. I will take your money. I will take your money. Send it to me, Josh. Will you take the Russians' money? I'll take any money as any currency in any country. Wrong, people, send me your money. I will take it. I am not going to turn it down. Like I don't. Do you have to? We're open to bribes, blackmail, treason. (laughs) (laughs) We do it all. We do it all over here. (laughs) I don't understand. Like I don't understand. I don't understand why people just don't send me money. Like, what do you have? What's there's something I'm missing here. There's a link, and I can't figure out what the link is. Oh, anyways, I just, listen, Russian billionaires or Texas oil men, send your money. We will take it. We will cash the check, okay? We will cash, if you were worried that we wouldn't cash the check, the check will be cashed and spent promptly. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll, we'll do the Brewster's Million gig, right? I mean, I can spend the money. 
So I have DOD contractors in my family, so I just have to say that after today, I'm not going to be associated with these people. <laughs> it's odd that you are leaving the podcast today. Now that I think about it, <laughs> you probably yeah, the, that's why the day that I'm money. leaving is the one that you decide that you're going to get bribed by the Russians to commit treason. <laughs> see, do you see what they're going to do without me, listeners? <laughs> Let's just say this. Josh, we haven't been getting money. Nate now tells us on his last day that he's part of the government conspiracy to keep people down. I think those two things are related. So there's a reason why we haven't gotten money. Thanks, Nate. I'm in cahoots. Thanks, Nate. With the communists. Nathan, it has been a pleasure to work with you on this show. Um, So we will, we will miss you. Um, So I'll let you, we have DRW coming up after you. So you will get the final word before we get DRW as this is your last show with us. Well, it's been a great pleasure, guys. I learned a lot. I got called a communist a lot. I also got called a a lot of other things a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's been awesome. This has been a great, great uh, experience. Our listeners are awesome. And I'm going to miss all of you very, very much. And now David Ramson Wood on Inside the War Room. Okay, so this conversation that we've had was somewhat, at least from my perspective, I set up intentionally because this is the conversation that got you banned from LinkedIn, <laughs> which is why I wanted to get you on the show. Uh, right. But I wanted to have a conversation about COVID to show how simple this is. So if you disagree with everything we said um, or, or what, what I said or what he said, or it doesn't matter, it's this in a little bit more detail is what actually got you kicked off, suspended. I don't want to put the wrong term. Are you banned permanently? What, what's your status? So it's, not, it's a little unclear. I'm not going to lie, but I, I went in, I went in to do a post Maybe Monday, what day is it? Thursday today. So I must have gone in like Tuesday, and my and it, like I logged in and it said, you know, you're not logged in. So I logged in mm-hmm. and it said your account's been temporarily restricted mm-hmm. due to a violation of the user policy. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I tried to like, is there an email? No, there's no email. Is there a phone number? No, the two phone numbers you can Google go to automatic systems. It says it log in from a, uh, a desktop and then verify your identity, which is with government license, presumably because it's a bot. And once they've verified you, they will reach out to you. And so I think it was yesterday morning, I got a note that, that in, said, I, I, I violated the LinkedIn user policy for posting false information. Now, first of all, there isn't actually in the do's and don'ts of the user policy, there's no necessary requirement to cite your data, nor is there a false anything. Like you're obviously liable for slander and all these other things, but like in terms of content, they license it for their exclusive use, but I own it. So presumably I can say whatever I want, but then they sent four emails that said where I was false and they all referred to coronavirus and they all referred to where I've in one way, shape or form talked about, there's virtually no chance for younger people under 50 to die of this thing. And there was, they included, they highlighted something the CDC has on their website that says that of all the death certificates in the United States, only 6% had COVID as the only cause of death mm. and that the average has 2.6 comorbidities for death. Right. LinkedIn highlighted that part of a post and said it was false information. And in my rebuttal, I just pointed them to the exact paragraph on the CDC website from where that came. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in shock because of all the controversial things I've said and all the people I've called out and and all the conversations I've got into, for that 
to be the thing that they're saying is false information when I can back up everything with citation is crazy. So right now I'm waiting to hear if they will validate my appeal. 